Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, we'll hear from author and journalist Martha Elliott about her book on Connecticut serial killer Michael Ross. But first, was good wife fancy sexually harassed? What will happen to the bigamist's wife, and what will become of the drunken sailors? These are a few of the dilemmas that brought Connecticut's early settlers to court in 17th century New Haven Colony. While the law has evolved a lot from those early days, there's a lot we can still learn about these vividly recorded tales. John Blue is a judge of the Connecticut Superior Court and author of The Case of the Piglet's Paternity, Trials from the New Haven Colony, 1639 to 1663. He recently sat down with us to talk about this new book. John Blue, welcome to Where We Live. Happy to be here. First of all, how do we have these records? Tell us about just what you had to do to scour the archives to find these amazing legal records. First, it is amazing that the, we still have these records. It's kind of like the scene at the uh, end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, <laughs> where the Ark of the Covenant is um, placed into a government warehouse, which is what happened with these early records. The um, secretaries, as they called them, of the New Haven Colony, which was its own colony, not the Connecticut Colony, kept these wonderfully vivid records and essentially put them in a box uh, where they reposed for hundreds of years. In the 1850s, many of them were published by in a very limited form by the Connecticut State Library, but uh, not completely because uh, parts of them were deemed unfit for publication, which was a real clue that they might be fit for publication. <laughs> and I found these in a rare book library some years ago and became interested and the uh, Connecticut State Archivist was kind enough to give me photocopies of the manuscript records from the 1600s that were never printed. And I spent a lot of time learning to read those records. Maybe unfit for publication in part because there are some salacious tales in here indeed. And we'll get to some of them in, in just a moment. But first, for our listeners, maybe you can describe what the uh, New Haven colony was, who was there, and what the government structure was like. Because I think that tells us an awful lot about the law in that time as well. Sure. Uh, the New Haven Colony was founded as its own colony. This was not the Connecticut Colony in 1638, and it was a theocracy. It was run by uh, people who had been religious dissidents in England, and uh, as we are taught in school about the pilgrims, they came to uh, this country or this these shores to worship God in their own ways. Uh, their own ways were extremely strict because the only law they recognized was the Bible. And essentially, the colony was run by a bunch of elders. There was no separation of church and state, uh, really, and there was certainly no uh, separation of powers. Uh, you had a council or a court, as they called, that could be passing laws in the morning and uh, deciding cases in the afternoon. And it was all the same people with the governor in charge, and he pretty much was of the same mind as the local minister, John Davenport. Uh, so uh, depending on your point of view, it was either a perfect or a horrifying theocracy. And the trials that would happen during this time were not in the great uh, English tradition of a trial 
by jury that has persisted to this day. We often didn't have juries uh, sitting on these trials at all, right? Well, when you say often, that's not true. Actually, most American colonies had kept the jury. The Connecticut colony, which was Hartford, kept the jury. But because the New Haven colony recognized only the Bible, my own theory is that uh, ordinary people were thought unfit to interpret the Bible. And it was a tightly knit uh, group of elders who knew what the Bible dictated and who uh, essentially ran things. Uh, So there were no um, uh, juries, and there were very few attorneys, and the attorneys that were there usually didn't do anything, and they may not even have been attorneys by our point of view. They could have been friends or helpers of some some sort. So it was a very different uh, type of atmosphere than you would have in either a courtroom of today or a courtroom in Boston or in Hartford or in London in the 1600s. Yeah, as you write in the introduction, often the, the laws weren't written down, and, and you, you write here that uh, the 1656 laws are thus not intended to provide an exclusive codification of legal rules, while printed laws are to govern when applicable. When there is a want of law, then the word of God will fill in the gaps. That, I think, says it all as, as far as how the laws are written or not written for the t- people of the time. Sure. And one of the interesting things is the um, New Haven Colony uh, published what we sometimes call the Blue Laws, in, nothing to do with me, uh, in uh, 1656, which was a um, short book of statutes but basically paid no attention to them. Uh, One of the fascinating—the colony lasted until 1665, and the court judgments just kept on referring to the Bible. Uh, So the laws were advisory only. Advisory only. So we're talking about this new book. It's called The Case of the Piglet's Paternity Trials from the New Haven Colony, 1639 to 1663. Judge John Blue, uh, who put together this fascinating series of stories, is with us here to talk about them. So let's get to some of these cases. And I suppose we should start with the one that gives the book its title, The Case of the Piglet's Paternity. This is perhaps one of these salacious stories that maybe are unfit for publication. Tell us the story, if you would. Sure. Uh, Well, this is the title uh, case, and it's certainly the most sensational uh, case uh, probably ever litigated in the entire (laughs) history of Connecticut, if not of North America, if not of the world. Uh, So in very brief form, in uh, 1642, a deformed piglet was born. And the deformed piglet, he was born dead, but it had a very interesting eye. Uh, It was a deformed eye, and people noticed that that eye looked very suspiciously like a uh, farmhand, local farmhand named George Spencer. And people put two and two together as to how that piglet had come into the world. Spencer denied any impropriety, but he was um, uh, locked up in the local stockade, which can't have been very pleasant. Uh, he was browbeaten by the local magistrates, including the governor and the minister of the church. Eventually, he confessed which I think we can now say with our perspective was the very first documented false confession in the history of North America. Most likely, yes. Um, He immediately took back the confession, but it was too late. He was tried, found to be the father of the piglet, based primarily on his own statements plus the supposed similarity of the piglet's eye to his eye, which is in the wonderful words of the records, uh, was as uh, like to the eye in the glass as to the eye in the face. 
which is what we in the law call circumstantial evidence. So uh, the only law recognized was that of the Bible, and very unhappily for Mr. Spencer, there, there is a verse in Leviticus uh, that says, uh, he who lieth with the beast must be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast. And I'm very sorry to say that in 1642 in New Haven, uh, this terrible sentence was carried out as uh, a monument to the severity of the colony's laws, certainly, as well as the credulity of mankind. We'll be talking a bit about some of the things that we can actually learn about our current legal system through some of these stories. Is there a tale to be taken away from the case of the Piglet's Paternity that we can utilize today? Or is this just such a, an ancient, such an archaic, such an outlandish thing that we just throw it away as, well, that's the way they did it back in the 1600s in, uh, in colonial America? Well, I hope that that's true in part. Uh, but here's the way I look at it, which is a little bit more nuanced. One of the things that I talk about in the introduction, I talk about in some of these other cases where uh, these judges did pretty intelligent things, is that these were not stupid people. They shared the beliefs of the time, and the beliefs of the time led fairly intelligent people to do something pretty atrocious. I think if we're sober about ourselves, we'll realize that 400 years from now, we hope that we'll be praised for some of the things we do, but people will undoubtedly look back at some of the things we're doing now from the vantage point of another 400 years and say those people must have been out of their minds. Uh, that is the nature of uh, human progress, if you will, that all of us uh, who share in the belief system of the times uh, we'll hopefully do some intelligent things, but we'll probably do some appallingly stupid things. Uh, and it's uh, best not to get on our high horse uh, when we look at this. If you believed, which we do not, in uh, interspecies reproduction, the uh, circumstantial evidence of the resemblance of the eyes was perfectly reasonable. In my own professional lifetime before DNA, there were paternity cases in which a young child was held before the jury and say, doesn't that look like daddy over there? And in some cases, the resemblance was indeed pretty striking, and that was considered pretty good evidence. But uh, we've also got to be aware of the fact that our belief systems may sometimes lead us into injustice. So I think that's a pretty good way of looking both at this tale and at the book. John Blue is judge of the Connecticut Superior Court. He joined us recently to talk about his new book called The Case of the Piglet's Paternity. Trials from the New Haven Colony, 1639 to 1663. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with more on the history of some of these cases. This is Where We Live.
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're listening back to an interview with Connecticut Superior Court Judge John Blue. His new book documents some of Connecticut's earliest courtroom dilemmas. It's called The Case of the Piglet's Paternity, Trials from the New Haven Colony from 1639 to 1663. You know, in some cases in the book, justices did indeed put aside biblical law. I'm wondering if you can tell us the story about the bigamist's wife and, and why perhaps it's something of a landmark in American judicial history. Sure. Uh, the bigamist's wife is a 1661 case. So this is just when the colony is near its end point. And it's really interesting, not so remarkable from today's point of view, but must have been quite remarkable both from the 17th century point of view and the biblical point of view. Uh, Mary Andrews uh, had a husband. He had gone to sea eight or nine years ago. He had gone to Barbados, uh, and he was believed to be living in Ireland. And uh, Miss Andrews heard through the grapevine of sailors and, and shippers that her husband had married another woman and was living in Ireland, and she came before the court, and she wanted a divorce. And the court gave it to her, which is pretty remarkable because, first, if the law is the Bible, you will remember that the Bible says, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. Uh, put asunder. And that's exactly uh, what the court did. And moreover, just from a strictly legal point of view, even today, if a couple was married and then one of the spouses goes and marries a second person, it is the second marriage that is void and not the first. Uh, the two would remain married, albeit unhappily. Uh, but the court realized either for perhaps moral reasons or for economic reasons that this just wasn't right. For one thing, if she'd remained married to a man who wasn't supporting her, she probably would have been a ward of the colony. They didn't want that. And uh, perhaps if you look at it from a modern point of view, uh, this was a marriage in barely name only. Uh, so the court did, from our point of view, uh, I, rather than regarding, rather than depending on legalisms, uh, either English law legalisms or biblical legalisms, it did the right and humane thing in allowing Miss Andrews to uh, get a divorce and to possibly marry other people. In, in that way, we see it as a as a more modern ruling, I suppose. Sure, and in, in more modern, you have to understand that first no-fault divorce just started basically uh, when I was in law school in, 1970, in the early 1970s, and until the mid-1900s, it was just about impossible to get a divorce unless you were Henry VIII. Or uh, there was something, you know, that was really quite extraordinary. And this predated the uh, 19th century by um, a couple of hundred years. I mean, they were much – uh, one way to uh, think about this is that in 1661, you're closer to Henry VIII than you are to the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> that is indeed one way to look at it. Tell us about the, the case of the disputed will. Here's, here's another one that I, I think maybe has some, some interesting modern resonances for us. Sure. Well, this is actually a case that I really like as a judge. And if I were to recommend that a neophyte judge read one case, it would be the disputed will case because it really involves a judge who actively engages with uh, a person appearing before him. Uh, so what had happened uh, was that um, a decedent, a man named James Hindes, had made a will, and the entire estate was left to his wife. Now, the problem was that he was survived by minor children, we think from maybe an earlier marriage. And the, the widow 
was about to marry another man, uh-huh. which means that the minor children would have been without resources and kind of like the bigamous wife, probably wards of the colony, and the wife would get everything. So uh, these people are brought before the court. And I've got to tell you that on the law of wills, then and now, unless you leave all your money to your cat or something like that, Mm -hmm. pretty much you can leave your money to any person you want. Your spouse may have uh, 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 protection against being completely disinherited, but if you leave your money to your spouse, uh, your minor children are out in the cold then and now. But the court recognized that this wasn't right, and it really confronted in a very biblical way the widow, maybe she was the happy widow, uh, with the golden rule. And it said, how would you feel if your husband had left everything to the kids and nothing to you? And, of course, she had no good answer to that. And um, with that kind of questioning by the court, the parties eventually came to what we would call a settlement where she got something and the kids got something, which was surely the right kind of solution for that problem. But the lesson for judges, I think, then and now, is to try to avoid confronting the litigants as kind of an Olympic god hurling lightning (laughs) bolts and try to engage them and reason with them as best you can. Some people can't be reasoned with, but some people can. And the hope is that at least in many cases, people will do the right thing, which is what happened in the case of the disputed wealth. And that's what's so fascinating about this, too, is that the law prescribes so much to us and it gives us so many guidelines But we often do think, whether it's judges or uh, prosecutors, we think, my goodness, can't they just see that there's a human way to handle this that could be so much better? And I'm sure this comes into your courtrooms all the time. All the time. This question of the law says this, but can't we just, I don't know, work it out? And and that's a story that goes all the way back 400 years. Can't we all get along, as Rodney King (laughs) Can't we all just get along? Well, here's a story about just getting along, and this is perhaps amusing, but it gets back to some of the questions about what was uh, okay and not okay to do or sell in the the 1600s. The case of the drunken sailors. Can you tell us us this one? All right. Uh, This is uh, one of my personal favorites. This is a 1648 case. And who knew that sailors could become intoxicated? Yeah, I've, uh, I've never must, heard such a thing. I, I'm sure that your listeners will be uh, quite shocked to learn. So uh, this involves both an epic brawl between the sailors of three different ships in New Haven Harbor and kind of an interesting question of law that's very analogous to the kinds of question that judges at all levels, including the Supreme Court of the United States, have all the time. And that is what to do when a law seems to dictate a particular result that makes no sense. And I'm thinking, uh, for example, of the Obamacare case that was just before the Supreme Court of the United States, for example. But at any rate, in this case, there were sailors from three ships who got together in New Haven Colony, uh, and they decided to tie one on, uh, first time in nautical history, I'm sure. Uh, and they went to what was probably something like a speakeasy, uh, an unofficial bar run by a man named Bassett. Now, Bassett is kind of a cunning character, and he tells them that he has a three-court rule. Uh, That is that 
he can't serve a smaller quantity than three quarts of whatever it is that he's serving, which is probably pretty strong. Well, the sailor said, no problem there. Uh, They drank the three quarts, and then for good measure, they had another three quarts. And, of course, by that time, they were in quite a state. Uh, One of the sailors calls another sailor, Brother Loggerhead. And at that point, the fists were flying. Now it's on. Now it's on. So they go out into the street, and there's this tremendous brawl. Uh, They're uh, punching each other's face. They're tearing out each other's eyes. They're rolling in the mud. And uh, they're generally acting as drunken sailors uh, might. Uh, So um, if if you ever read From Here to Eternity by James Jones, uh, you'll recall some drunken brawls in there that this is kind of reminiscent of. So all these people are brought before the magistrates, except for the, the sailors of one ship who escape before the gendarmes can get them. And the drunken sailors are given kind of modest fines and, and sent out of town. But the interesting question is what to do with Bassett. He's, he's the saloon keeper because he wasn't a licensed saloon keeper. And uh, to uh, make a long story short, there was a local law that said that to prohibit drunkenness or to prevent drunkenness, you had to, if you were serving in quantities of two quarts or less, you have to have a license. Of course, the idea was probably to exempt wholesalers from it. But if you were serving in two quarts or one quart or pints or cups or whatever, you have to have a license. And that's why Bassett said, well, I've got to serve three quarts at a minimum. So the question was, had Bassett broken the law? Because if you looked at the law, he invoked this three-court rule, which was his invention, not, not the uh, jurisdictions, and uh, he was absolutely right. He wasn't serving in these small quantities. But the whole point of the law is to prevent drunkenness. So uh, the court uh, saw right through this and gave him an extra heavy fine, and that was its resolution of what we would call a case of statutory construction. But I, I talk in a commentary to this case that what I think a lot of people don't realize, although they should, is that judges all the time, from the lowest court to the highest in the land, are confronted with statutes which, if they are read literally, just don't make sense and sometimes produce really incongruous results. Uh, The latest Obamacare case where the um, state exchanges had to be treated as federal exchanges or federal exchanges had to be treated as state exchanges in order to regularize uh, the uh, provision of medical care throughout the country uh, is a good example. If you read the law literally, it was pretty easy to follow, but it didn't make any sense. But we come across this all the time. We come across it in zoning cases. We come across it in civil cases. We come across it in criminal cases. And judges are paid to use their judgment, which is what the court did here. One thing that's so interesting, though, too, is, and, and you mentioned earlier, the the blue laws of, of some law, and, and in places like Connecticut, we've We've grappled with some blue laws over the course of time. I think about my home state of Pennsylvania when I read this case. In Pennsylvania, you can't go to a local store and just buy a six-pack of beer. You have to go to a, a store with a certain license, and you can only buy beer in cases. And I'm sure that there's probably some really great reason why that law was written that way, but the end result is you end up with more beer than you might have wanted. Therefore, you might drink more. Therefore, there might be more bad consequences but it's never been taken off the books. And I guess I just wonder, after all these years, John Blue, why some of these things have persisted, because some of these cases make absolutely no sense whatsoever, but yet we still haven't changed the way we do things 400 years later. Well, that's because, uh, first, uh, whatever era we're in, we're run by human beings, and human beings are contradictory. (laughs) 
whatever era we're in, judges every day or certainly every year have to uh, face a choice between diligently following the legislature and using their own judgment and trying to maintain a balance between that and um, a perfect world is on the other side of the grave rather than ours. Uh, that is for sure. So I don't have the answers to any of these questions, but I hope that reading my book will educate your listeners that a lot of these problems are endemic in the human race, that human beings are complicated. But I also do appreciate the, that perspective that perhaps in 400 years, if we as humans are still here, one might look back at what we do today as not as modern, as not as thoughtful as perhaps we, we consider it to be. And I think that that for a lot of people in the legal profession, but I just think for a lot of Americans, I think sure. that's a pretty good perspective, right? Oh, I think so. And I mean, remember, 400 years itself is just a blip in the history of the human race. Well, thank you so much, John Blue, judge of the Connecticut Superior Court, author of this book, The Case of the Piglet's Paternity Trials from the New Haven Colony from 1639 to 1663. Thank you so much, sir. It's been a pleasure to be here. When we come back, journalist Martha Elliott will talk about her friendship with serial killer Michael Ross. The story is outlined in a new book called The Man in the Monster, an intimate portrait of a serial killer. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, President Bill Clinton is in Connecticut to accept an award at UConn. But a trip to the state isn't complete without a fundraiser, so he'll swing by Attorney General George Jepson's house to fundraise for his wife's presidential campaign as well. Our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, will discuss this in the week's news with former Clinton advisor Bill Curry. Hope you can join us. Today on the show, when Martha Elliott was a reporter for the Connecticut Law Tribune, she wrote a letter to serial killer Michael Ross a Connecticut man who raped and murdered eight young women between 1981 and 1984. She ended up developing what she would later call a friendship with the man before he was put to death by the state of Connecticut in 2005. He was the last person in the state to be executed. Elliot wrote a book about her relationship with Ross called The Man in the Monster, an Intimate Portrait of a Serial Killer. We spoke with her earlier this year. Martha Elliott, welcome to Where We Live. Oh, thank you. First of all, explain to us what drew you to this case of Michael Ross and how you began your correspondence with him. I was the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Connecticut Law Tribune, which was an American lawyer media paper, primarily uh, directed towards lawyers, but a lot of people read it. And I became aware of the fact that Michael did not want to appeal his uh, well, he had appealed his uh, death sentences. It's an automatic thing. But he did not want a new trial after his death sentences were overturned. And he said, just kill me. Well, most people, if your death sentences are overturned, would say, oh, this is wonderful, and maybe I'll live. Instead, he just said, I don't want the families of the victims to go through it. Well, that's a great story if you're a journalist. And so I wrote to him and asked him for an interview. You wrote to him, you asked him for an interview, and it began a long series of interviews, conversations that ended up you and he developing a, a friendship. Can you talk about how that developed from a, a journalistic curiosity that many of us have about a story and a person 
to really drawing so many new insights from someone who you became close to? I never, ever in my imagination thought I would be friends with a serial killer. I am a chicken. I don't watch scary movies or anything. And the mere thought of Michael Ross, when he accepted my request, petrified me. The first time I talked to him on the phone, I broke out in a sweat. I was soaking wet when I hung up the phone. I don't know what I was afraid of. He was hundreds of miles away. So we start with that. But what I met was a man who seemed intelligent, reasonable, truly repentant, and it took me six months to write my article because I really researched it well. I read trial transcripts. I talked to lawyers. I talked to psychiatrists. And when that six months was up, my fears had gone away. I realized that the medication had chained, literally, the monster, as he called it, in his head. And, and I was really only going to meet the person that he thought he was, Michael Ross. And I didn't have the heart to stop taking his calls. He was lonely, and there were very few people he would call. And he became, in a way, somebody I would talk to, and we'd talk about anything. I knew he regarded me as a friend, but it took me a long time to even admit to myself that I had a friend who was a serial killer. I would say two or three years, and then it was even harder for me to admit to other people that he was my friend because I thought it made me seem bizarre. I didn't want to be regarded as some one idiot person who's obsessed with serial killers because I certainly wasn't. In your fear of maybe being perceived that way, did it stem in part from something that has happened before, certainly, in conversations with people who have the type of deep mental issues that, that he had? Um, that they feel as though they're being played, that they're being manipulated on a daily basis by someone who has a, a twisted view of what actual reality is. Is, is that, was that part of your fear there? My fear at first was because I, you know, I, I was afraid of this monster that, I, that killed and raped eight women. After I started talking to him, I was afraid of being manipulated, definitely. I knew about Ted Bundy. I knew how charming he could be. I knew that he was a master of manipulation. And I had all my antenna up uh, trying to discern whether or not Michael was playing me. But I really, really came to the conclusion that he wasn't. He was as interested in finding out why he became the monster in a way that he did because he couldn't imagine how it happened. And so we actually together went on a journey to try to find answers. We're talking with Martha Elliott, who's a journalist and author of The Man in the Monster, An Intimate Portrait of a Serial Killer. It's a book about Michael Ross, who's the last man to be executed in the state of Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Where We Live. Martha, I'm going to read a a small excerpt from about the middle of your book, and I thought it was a a telling little piece of writing here. This comes right after the two of you had had a conversation in which you say you'd pressed him on a lot of tough subjects and shown him where there were contradictions in his story. And I'll just pick up from there. You write, 
The next day, April 20th, he wrote to me trying to explain his position. This is in quotes, The real issue boils down to just two simple facts. One, I raped and murdered eight women. Two, I am responsible for those actions and the consequences of those actions on the families of my victims, end quote. He said he often got so caught up in proving his mental illness that he forgot his responsibilities. He said he got so excited when I read the transcripts, interviewed his doctors, and acknowledged the lies and distortions in his case because he wanted the truth to be known that he was evil. He was not evil, excuse me, but merely sick. Uh, You write that he said, I don't want to be hated and despised. I don't want people cheering at my execution. I get concerned with how others perceive me. It is self-centeredness, but I have to fight the urge to protect how others perceive me because, in my case, it carries a dreadful cost. And in the end, which is more important, how others perceive you or how you perceive yourself? Could you just talk about that passage and a bit of what insight you, you gather from how he viewed himself and how others viewed him at the time of his imprisonment? You know, that is a key passage in the whole book. I'm glad you read that because it was how he looked at it. He had a sense of justice that was, I did something wrong, I deserve to be punished. And in a way, it was almost like the transcendentalist, which is that there's a certain law that supersedes man's law. Yes, there were legal ways he could have perhaps gotten life sentence and he could have pursued that but in his sense of justice he deserved to be punished and executed and he said he had to be true to himself now i later realized that although he said that and i truly believe he meant it the exact opposite was true because why he was doing it had a lot to do with how others perceived him. He wanted to be forgiven by the families. And the only way he could possibly say, I'm sorry, in his mind, was to accept death and put an end to all the legal process. So essentially you're saying that he felt he deserved it, and in order to be able to truly apologize, he needed to be able to go through with it. But this is, of course, one of the great paradoxes of the case of of Michael Ross. It's that the legal system that he was relying on to mete out this punishment, it may not have necessarily been the case that he should have been executed. The, The type of mental illness that he was suffering from that he needed medication for is exactly the sort of mitigating factor that might keep one off of death row. Talk about how that played out in the ongoing stories you covered at Martha, because essentially you were reporting on someone who wanted to die and who many people wanted to die, but there was quite a bit of question as to whether or not he should have died. That's exactly right. But I will say he didn't really want to die. If he could have gotten a life sentence with, you know, if a judge somewhere in an appellate court had said, this man's death sentences were unconstitutional and they broke the law and or whatever reason and he and just give him a life sentence he would have been happy but he didn't think that that would ever happen he kept he knew that higher courts would keep sending him back there'd be trial after trial after trial and he didn't want to go through that because as you say his mental illness according to the law in Connecticut at the time was an automatic mitigating factor. 
which means that it was something that should have given him mercy. Now, every single psychiatrist who assessed him agreed that he was a sexual sadist and that it was a mitigating factor. Even the psychiatrist who, who assessed him for the state of Connecticut, and yet the juries couldn't take that into consideration or believe it because the, the fact that there were so many bodies proved that he was mentally ill, that he was a sexual sadist. But because there were so many bodies, they couldn't forgive it. They couldn't let it go unpunished. They couldn't let it not get the ultimate punishment. And so the juries all voted for death. And he didn't think that would ever change. And in that regard, I think it's right. I don't think that juries should be playing God. And that's what we really ask them to do. Did you have a very well-formed personal opinion on the death penalty before you entered into this reporting project, and how did you see it change over the years? Absolutely. I've always been against the death penalty. I can't remember ever not being against the death penalty. My father was a conscientious objector in World War II. I was brought up in a household where um, killing was wrong, and so I that is ingrained in every ounce of me. And that was also a, a reason why I became interested in the case. I didn't want the state I lived in to be the first state in New England in, uh, well, it turned out to be 45 years, to carry out an execution. You talk about the fact that because of the number of bodies, the number of victims in this case, it was hard for the state, the jury, to turn away from the death penalty, which, of course, was legal in Connecticut at the time. Uh, a big reason why people don't turn away is the victims attached to uh, those bodies and the people who are left as survivors. What sort of relationship did you develop over the years as you covered and befriended Michael Ross with those families of the women that he killed? When the second penalty trial was over, because they wouldn't let him just accept death, I wrote to all of the victims' families. I sent them a FedEx letter and said that I was writing a book and that I'd like to interview them and know about their daughters. I didn't just want them to be names and ages in the book. Two families, the Shelleys and the Stavinskys, agreed to talk to me. I became very close with the Shelley family, and their story is intertwined in the whole book. And I understood how they felt. I understood why Ed Shelley was dead set on having Michael Ross be given the ultimate penalty. He, he said to me, I keep thinking about her last moments, how scared she was, knowing that he was killing her best friend. And she was tied up in the trunk, and what was next? And what was she thinking? How did she feel? As a parent, I understood their pain. But I also am, am eternally grateful for the friendship that I've developed with the Shelleys. I, I've talked to Lyra Shelley all the way through. Ed uh, committed suicide, unfortunately, a few years ago. But the Shelleys have remained extremely close to me. And um, I sent Lyra a copy of the book, and 
she was very happy with it. And and to be honest, her review of the book was the most important review that I will get. Hmm. Martha Elliott is the author of the brand new book, The Man in the Monster. It's an intimate portrait of a serial killer. It's about Michael Ross and the conversations they had over the course of many years as she covered him and later uh, befriended him. Martha, thank you so much for this great piece of work. I really appreciate you spending some time with us here on Where We Live. Thank you. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.